Hello, and welcome to the Great Birth Rebellion podcast, where we grapple with current research to help you get the best out of your pregnancy, birth, and postpartum journey, while still challenging the dominant birth culture. I'm your host, Dr. Melanie Jackson at Melanie the Midwife, and I'm joined weekly by my co-host, B from Core and Flora Store, and this is the Great Birth Rebellion. Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Great Birth Rebellion. And today is a follow-on from episode 24, which we did placental birth. And today we're going to talk specifically specifically about PPH. Welcome, B. Can we tell them the good news first? Because I'm so excited. You tell them. We have, as of today, right now, hit 100,000 downloads. So thank you for being, thanks for being, what is it? Part of the revolution. What's the Tracy, is it Tracy, Tracy Chapman song? Talking about a revolution. Is talking about, we're not talking, well, we are, we are yeah, talking about yeah. it, but we we are a part of it. We're doing it and so are all of you. So yes, yes, yeah. yes. 100,000 downloads means, that means that our podcast has been played 100,000 times. It'll be a million by the end of the year. So PPH, what does it mean for the people that don't live in acronym world, Mel? So PPH stands for postpartum hemorrhage. Hemorrhage meaning bleeding, postpartum meaning after you've given birth. I'm sure Mel is going to give us a much better definition because she always brings the definition goes. I have a little bee in my bonnet about the definition. So why don't you give the definition and then I'll release the bee from bee. Yes, I'm so glad you've got a bee in your bonnet because I've got a bee too and our bees can be, I don't know. just buzz right off. (laughs) That's right. Well, yes, you're right. I do. I've got all the preparations. So PPH, well, postpartum hemorrhage, like you said, there's, there's two types of postpartum bleeds that you could have and that would be a primary postpartum hemorrhage, which is blood loss that occurs, well, excessive blood loss that occurs up to 24 hours after you've had a baby. And then there's secondary PPH or postpartum hemorrhage, which happens after 24 hours. Yeah, and I I don't really like the six-week border because if women have got things like uh, retained placental products or something's going on, I've had clients who have bled for longer than six weeks and had clots and things like that. So I would still consider that a postpartum, secondary postpartum hemorrhage because it's related to having had a baby. But anyway, finer details, basically before 24 hours or after. And the most common is the before 24 hour mark. So we were taught and most clinicians are taught that over 500 mils of blood loss in the first 24 hours is considered a postpartum hemorrhage. But the the definitions are changing. And so there's lots of papers that actually are now referring to over a thousand mils as a postpartum hemorrhage, but most hospital policies will consider it 500 mils. So if you've lost more than 500 mils, they will start to do things to act on a postpartum hemorrhage. They don't necessarily consider the condition of the woman. So this is something that Probably has got something to do with the bee in your bonnet bee. Mm, I'd say our bees are the same. Correct. Is that in order to diagnose someone as being what we call hypovolemic, so low volume of blood in their body, which is part of the issue of losing too much blood, is that 
you don't have enough blood left in your body to for your body to function the way it should. So we call it hypovolemia, low volume. And you can diagnose that the woman's blood pressure gets low, her pulse rate goes up, gets high. She usually feels faint, looks pale, can become unresponsive, um, and they sometimes lose vision and hearing. So these are all signs of hypovolemia. And I've seen women express these signs in the absence of a lot of blood loss. But as the clinician at, you know, looking after those women, it presents like a postpartum hemorrhage. And so you kind of act on that. So even if they've only lost two or 300 mils, but their blood pressure is going low, their pulse is going high, and they're exhibiting all the signs of hypovolemia, then it's possibly good clinical care to treat for a postpartum hemorrhage, even though the volume has it presented itself as a postpartum hemorrhage. And this is what, so I teach maternity emergency courses to nurses and doctors and midwives around Australia. And um, the definition we give is this amount of blood loss or if they are showing signs of hypovolemia. My issue with the amount is, as you've seen, Mel, some people can lose 100 mils and become hypovolemic other people can lose three litres and it's like they've not lost a drop of blood. And so it's a really tricky one. I get it. I get that we kind of have to have this cutoff where we're like, right, we act now. I, I get it in terms of the system and how the system works that it needs that. But certainly from practice and then understanding physiology, I think that definition can often do more harm than good. Well, the other thing that we know from research is that actually cl clinicians are really poor at visually estimating blood loss. And so Yeah, but what that has done is change a lot of practice. So I don't know if you're aware of this, Mel, with where you enter the system occasionally when you do transfers, but all these things have now been created that cost the hospital money that change our practice and change the way people birth, which is these bags that measure the blood loss. So they attach these like big it's like a big garbage bag that collects the blood right and they attach that to the bed for it to collect all the blood so they can weigh it to get an accurate measurement and this is what drives me crazy ooh, ooh, it's big breaths be is because then it becomes all about the number all about what's in the bag all about what tells us on the scale and we've lost connection to that person and if you've lost connection to the person in your practice and she's lost connection to you, which is about safety and oxytocin. And so much of what we do in the PPH, PPH phase does not create safety. Pressing a red button and having 20 strangers run in a room and having your baby removed from you and your partner shoved in the corner does not make your oxytocin go, oh, yeah, let's stay here for the party. It gets the hell out of there, right? So, yeah, there are bags now. Now, in order to catch the blood, what position do you think, Mel? What position yeah. do you think the person has to give birth in? Well, this is I have been at births where they've got the bag under. And it's like the baby's going to drop in the bag, right? They're just standing there because she's in a standing position. We can't catch the blood if she's in a standing position. You know, just this sheer panic of not being able to catch the blood in the bag to measure it. And I was working in a hospital that was a part of a study at the time. And it was horrendous because it, all our practice changed to be around this bloody bag, literally. Some of you midwives and doulas are listening to this being you've been exposed to the bloody bag. And it is horrendous because yeah, if you're told to lay on the bed 
to birth a baby so that they can accurately measure your blood loss? We know if your pulse is elevating, right? So you mentioned the, the signs. The pulse is the first symptom. If I'm caring for you in a very clinically safe way and I just ever so gently feel your pulse rate and I notice that it is a hell of a lot higher now than it was, bang, I'm onto it. I know that something is pathophysiologically playing out for you in your body. And then we act on that. But so much of PPH management comes down to this, well, it's 503 mils. So now we have to act, but what the system needs is numbers and bloody bags. Well, and I haven't seen the bags, probably because I only ever transferred to two of the local hospitals. So I haven't seen all of the hospitals, but I've noticed. What you said, I would have I would have really thought one of the local hospitals you would have transferred because I worked there once would have those bags. That's really interesting. I haven't seen, yeah, I haven't seen the bags, but I have seen them weighing pads and, you know, all the things that the blood is on and weighing them and they know how much any of the bluey pads or the plastic-backed pads weigh and they'll minus that if they've got three plat- pad- pads soaked with blood, they'll minus the weight and try and get the weight of the blood. So I know that they're weighing things in order to make up for the fact that we visually as clinicians have a lot of trouble estimating how much blood loss is too much blood loss. But that's what I think. I think wouldn't it be so nice if we could actually define postpartum hemorrhage as the woman's, you know, what we've noticed in the woman rather than the volume of blood? Because I'm I'm like 54 kilos, right? And I'm really short. I've got clients who are 85 kilos and are super tall. So they have actually more blood to they could lose a bit more than I could before they feel rubbish and also we put on about 50 percent blood volume in our pregnancy which we don't necessarily need once we've had the baby so it's okay to lose a bit and part and you know yeah you meant we're meant to right we're meant to come back to our pre-pregnant state so part of it we lose at the birth part of it we lose in the postnatal period and this is something that a lot of people don't know you typically bleed everyone is different just like everyone's periods are different their bleeding time is different um people will bleed up to around six weeks some people will bleed for a little bit more especially if there's been issues that haven't been picked up like routine products and some people will bleed a lot less and i know when i had my physiological birth of my placenta, I bled a lot less than I had active management, which we actually saw through the research as well. And and people anecdotally, I'd seen that in my practice. Um, So the bleeding is different, but you do continue to bleed. And so there is a lot to this as everything. It's a very individualized thing. And I think really what you and I rock up every week and do is show what happens in the system. And for some people, that will feel really great. Some people will want to know that if they reach this amount of blood loss, then this is what's going to happen. But really understanding that the system has overarching policies and procedures that affect every single person, and it's not an individualized approach. People need to understand when they enter the system that this is there. And for some, that will bring safety. For others, that won't. And so it's about understanding your choices. Yeah, totally. And it can be, you know, and actually a lot of the research that talks about volume of blood loss actually does talk about how most women can cope with over a thousand mils of loss before they become hypovolemic. Yeah, there is some acknowledgement in the research that that 500 mil level might not be as realistic as we think it's been through over the years. So you may have been diagnosed as having a postpartum hemorrhage, 
but maybe you didn't. <laughs> maybe you felt fine is what we're asking. Did you? How did you feel with that? And you may think, no, actually I felt like rubbish and I'm really glad they managed it. Others will be thinking, yeah, I was there enjoying my baby and then all this happened and I didn't feel like anything was wrong. So, yeah, and if we're looking at stats, we're kind of a lot more interested in how many women had blood loss over 1,000 mils rather than how many people had loss over 500 because, you you know, you don't really get incredibly compromised or at risk of a really bad outcome if you've lost between 500 and 1,000 mils. We're really interested in how many women end up losing over 1,000 and have a more major postpartum hemorrhage. So I thought we'd have a look at the stats, like how often does this happen to women? And I want to differentiate here between high, medium and low income countries, because sometimes when clinicians talk to women about the risk of postpartum hemorrhage and, you know, management of birth, they often just pull all of these stats together over the whole entire world. And if you read a paper that talks about, you know, maternal death, from postpartum hemorrhage is the most likely reason you could die from childbirth. It puts postpartum hemorrhage as this really scary thing as like the major reason why women die. But if you're in a high-income country, we need to completely ignore any research that's done about postpartum hemorrhage or really a lot of birth practices if they're in medium or low-income countries because the context is really important. And so in high-income countries, women very, very rarely die of postpartum hemorrhage in a high-income country, whereas in... No, we had zero deaths. In the last Mothers and Babies report, we had zero deaths from obstetric hemorrhage. Yeah, in 2022. And if we look at... I actually found the stats, collective stats, Um, Between 2011 and 2020, which is the most recent sort of collective stats that we've got, if we have a look at maternal deaths over that, what is it, nine years, 13 women over nine years have died of obstetric hemorrhage in Australia. And so are we able to look at what they have? Because I know two of those women. I don't know them personally, but I have worked in the hospitals where they died and they were both cesareans. Right? So, so can we look there. at does it break it? It doesn't break it down. Not in these stats, but you're right. The women at most risk of bleeding are those who have had cesarean sections. And we have to remember too that the causes of maternal death, the categorization is any death from blood loss during pregnancy or up to 42 days postpartum. So that's what obstetric hemorrhage is, is right from the beginning of when you're pregnant all the way to 42 days postpartum, 13 women in nine years. And so in Australia, we have somewhere between 250,000 and 300,000 births a year. So we can do the maths on that about how rare it is in a high-income country. So if your care provider is talking about stats from, you know, from low-income countries where maybe the women aren't getting antenatal care, but they could potentially be malnourished, they might not have access to timely care, then, yeah, of course, the postpartum hemorrhage rate will be way higher, but those stats don't apply to you. 13 women out of roughly 2.7 million have died. Let that just sink in of how low our risk is, right? That's here in Australia. 
That's here in Australia. When people talk about your risk of bleeding or risk of bleeding to death, because there is still so much fear about this. Birth is not inherently scary. We do not have to be afraid of it. We have conditioned ourselves to be afraid of it. We're conditioned to believe that women bleed to death and babies die. And that's the end. Birth works, right? Mental, environmental B right now is just saying there's a lot of humans because birth works, right? And if we have a look at the most, so the developed, the most developed country or the high income country that has one of the higher rates of postpartum hemorrhage is the US. And if we look at their stats, so this is the rate of postpartum hemorrhage that required blood transfusion. So this is usually over 1,000 or over 1.5, lit- over 1,000 mils or over 1.5 litres. And I realise if you're listening to us in America, we are talking in absolute metric terms. I don't know. How do they measure blood loss? Gallons? I have no idea. Yeah. Right, gallons. So if we look at their stats, um, one of the papers I found looked at the stats on women who had lost more than 1,000 mils that also required a blood transfusion. So you have to be in a pretty rough state to require a blood transfusion. So they their PPH rates increased. At, in 1993, eight women per 10,000 were in that category of having lost over 1,000 mils and requiring a blood transfusion. So only eight in 10,000. Hang on. Are you reading from the research? Yes. So the research is in mils and litres. Right, I know. It's American. Yeah. So they must measure it in mils and litres. It might not be. This might not be an American paper. This is just American stats. Now I'm looking it up because I'm not sure. So you keep talking while I. Yeah. So if we look at that and then it so far has increased and then so in 2014 in America, 40 women per 10,000 lost over 1,000 mils and required a blood transfusion. So still, considering in the US they're saying that their rates are increasing and and are the highest amongst most developed countries, that doesn't seem like a very big number again, 40 per 10,000. So in Australia, it's even less than that. So that's where the risks of PPH exist. And some people would say, oh, well, that's because we're managing it and that's why women aren't losing blood. Well, we found out in the last episode that actually the way we're managing placental birth might actually be increasing the risk of postpartum hemorrhage. But listen to that episode first, then listen to this one. What we're trying to say is is if your big number one fear about birth is that you're going to bleed to death and this is what your clinician has told you and this is why we're doing certain things, there's a very, 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 very good chance that you are not going to bleed to death because In Australia, particularly over the last nine years, only 13 women have. So, you know, that just puts it into perspective. You could bleed. We can help. We can treat that. But in America, which has one of the highest rates of maternal blood loss requiring transfusion, 40 women per 10,000 need that level of intervention. And it's even less here in Australia. So those are the stats. We know PPH, the definition's a bit cloudy. Everyone, even the research talks about it differently. And then you can't use stats from a low-income country to talk about the risk of postpartum hemorrhage in a medium or high-income country. 
I just want to say I'm not confident in saying that they measure it in gallons. I can't find anything. If you're an American midwife and you want to tell us how you measure it, we I feel like we must sound so ignorant here. But uh, yeah, I maybe they measure blood loss in mils. All right. So why? Why might we bleed after having a baby? And if you read a textbook or, you know, what we would talk be, I think, you know, the four T's. Tone, trauma, tissue, and thrombin. So we'll explain all of those. But we're going to add to that because rebellion. And we know that the four Ts aren't necessarily the only reasons why someone might bleed. So I've divided them into my own categories, of course. So I've I've divided them into physiological causes. So... If we think about this, um, things like having twins increases the amount of blood that you'll lose after you have a baby because the placental site's bigger, your uterus has been stretched bigger, and it might have a bit of trouble contracting right down after the birth. Your body's not damaged. It's, it's all part of the birth process, but physiologically, there's a reason why you've bled. So there's physiological causes, which could just be about your uterus not effectively uh, clamping down after you've given birth. But that could be for a completely physiological reason, like having had twins, for example. There are pathological causes. So there's actually something going wrong in your body that's caused you to bleed. So placental abruption, where your placenta comes off the side of your uterus, what we call an APH antepartum hemorrhage so you're actually bleeding during pregnancy or an intrapartum hemorrhage so while you're in labor you start bleeding that puts you at risk of postpartum hemorrhage high blood pressure preeclampsia uterine rupture clotting disorders low platelets all these things can be pathological reasons why you might be at risk of having a pph but you might not actually have a pph and then there's the iatrogenic or medically induced causes. So we know things like induction of labor, increase the risk of postpartum hemorrhage in low risk or high risk women. Things like episiotomies where they've actually cut your perineum and you can lose blood from the wound. Caesarean section. Um, and we learned, yes, we learned in the last episode that actively managing the third stage, the placental birth with medication and pulling out the placenta in low risk women increases the risk of bleeding. So, yes, we could break it up into tone where the uterus is not contracting as it should. But things like trauma, either a third or fourth degree tear could create a bleed, but more likely it would be an episiotomy. Um, things like tissue, so what that's the third T is tissue, where you might have retained placental products, again, an increased risk if you've had actively managed third stage. And then thrombin, which is related to platelets and your ability to clot your blood, or there are some genetic uh, causes for not being able to properly clot. They're less than, I think they're up like 1% of bleeds will occur because of that. So if we think about what happens, like where does the blood come from? Why why would women lose blood postnatally or after they've had a baby? So yes, last week, if you listen to the episode on placental birth, you'll know about how the placenta implants in the uterus and then how it shears off after the birth. And there's roughly about 500, 500 to 600 mils of blood 
passes through the uterus and placenta each minute. So you can imagine if we didn't manage a postpartum hemorrhage, how quickly it could get out of hand. But when that placenta comes off the side of the uterus, those blood vessels that were were feeding the placenta, they run through the muscle layers of your uterus. And I'm making hand movements now. (laughs) So hopefully my words will provide a visual description of what's happening in your body. But if you imagine blood vessels traveling through the mesh of your muscles through to the inside of your uterus and anchored to the uterus, that uh, to the placenta, so that when it comes off, you end up with these blood vessels that can just allow blood to flow through them. And so something has to stop the blood from coming out of these vessels that are no longer ending at the placenta. That's why it's important for your uterus to clamp down and get tight after you have a baby and contract because they create what's called what we call living ligatures. So essentially, the blood vessels run through the muscles, the muscles clamp and tighten and literally cut off blood flow through the those vessels that were feeding or feeding into the placenta to stop excessive blood loss. So if your uterus doesn't clamp down, then the blood can just keep flowing through those vessels. Then you've got the added action of once your uterus is clamped down and cut off blood flow through those vessels, then you'll develop these little microclots that clot in the vessels to stop the blood from flowing even when your uterus isn't completely contracted. And then gradually those blood vessels will atrophy and disappear and stop allowing any blood through them. So if you've got things like retained placental products in there that are potentially anchored onto the side of your uterus or sitting in your uterus and stopping it from clamping down, then this is the type of blood loss that would occur because your uterus isn't able to clamp properly, then the blood just keeps flowing through those vessels. Then if you're losing blood due to trauma, it could be something like a third or fourth degree tear or an episiotomy or very occasionally a uterine rupture. Sometimes you could have a high vaginal wall tear, for example. I've seen women lose blood from those. What does a body need? I think really when we want to understand bleeding and when the body doesn't work optimally here, optimally? Optimally. Optimally, right? That's what's happening. When you are bleeding, there has either been injury or the body is trying to get rid of something that shouldn't be in it, in which case it is working optimally. But in order to do what it needs to do, there will be more blood loss or the body is not working optimally. Really, that's how I see PPH. So why is the body not working optimally? We need to understand this. And and if we understand true physiology of how the body works optimally, it comes back to our hormones, which comes back to safety. So if we look at what increases oxytocin to be delivered, which then increases the ability for the uterus to contract, right? So it's exact same space and commitment to getting the baby out as the placenta out to then that postnatal sacredness and really guarding that postpartum space and not separating the family unit and really creating, I remember being taught about keeping a halo around the family unit and you not stepping into that um, halo unless you absolutely need to and doing it with utmost care and respect. 
you know, some people say that you can't have a physiological placental birth or you can't, like physiology can't happen as well in hospital as it does at home. And I found this research that really challenged my thoughts on that because there are there are there's research about where you are in the environment and how that impacts upon blood loss um, and placental birth. And I found this paper, it's by Deborah Davies and it's from New Zealand. So again, like amazing shout out to the New Zealanders because they're doing they're doing good things in birth. But they concluded that place of birth does not influence the risk of blood loss greater than a thousand mils. So there are papers that show if you're giving birth in hospital, you've got an increased risk of postpartum hemorrhage compared to to home. But in the low risk group, so all these women are low risk, active management of labor was associated with a twofold increase in blood loss of greater than a thousand mils. So more severe postpartum hemorrhages. Twice as likely if you have actively managed placental birth compared to physiologically managed, but that was the same at home. So even if you managed at home with active management, there was still those women still had a twofold increase regardless of where they'd given birth. The difference here was how placental birth was managed. There are midwives who sort of are like you can't. There's like you can't have a physiological placental birth in hospital. It, like it can't work as well as it would at home. But this particular paper found that actually actively managed placental birth has the same effect at home as it does at hospital. And then potentially physiological placental birth could have a similar impact at home compared to place. It's not necessarily about the place. It's more so about the management around the placenta. So how is it managed? How is it managed? We learned in the last episode that if you interrupt physiology, you can't always necessarily uh, assume it's going to just pick up and act normally after you interrupted it. If you start interrupting physiology, then you introduce the possibility of more risk and, you know, in this case, potentially more risk of bleeding. So If you do experience a postpartum hemorrhage, and you might, depending on the classification that your clinician decides to use, but if you're in hospital, it's probably over 500 mils is the classification, then you will be offered the medication that they would normally use for active management of your placenta, which is Syntocin or Pitocin if you're in the States, but it's an artificial oxytocin. Usually this works pretty well. If it doesn't, there's a range of other medications that can be used, including Sintametrin, which is an ergometrin. Tranexamic acid is coming into being used now. There's another medication called misoprostol, which can be given orally or rectally. A lot of these drugs are given either in your muscle or in your vein. They'll add IV fluids. So basically they want to increase the volume of your blood in order to prevent that hypovolemia. Sometimes that can be enough to recover. And then whilst all that is happening, one person will never take their hand off your womb. So they'll keep massaging it. It's a typical protocol, but it will vary between place to place on how things are given. So syntocin, syntometrin, ergometrin, misoprostol, transemic acid. And the other thing they do is they'll probably put a catheter in your urethra to empty your bladder because sometimes a full bladder can stop your uterus from contracting. So that's part of the routine 
management of a postpartum hemorrhage as well. So there's actually, and they're really quick with these. If there's anything that I've seen clinicians do super fast and super efficiently is manage a postpartum hemorrhage because every clinician is terrified of an uncontrolled postpartum hemorrhage because they can happen super fast. And so everyone's on high alert. So, you know, all the medicines are there and available and people act quite quickly. And I want to say we do have these at home births too. I think a lot of people think a home birth is where you have nothing on hand. We have most of the drugs, most, sometimes not all. And usually the syntocinone injection works very quickly if you haven't already added the syntocinone injection for the placental birth. And so it usually doesn't go much further from there. Yes, we've got all the medications. We can do most of the things that would be offered to you in a hospital setting. I would probably argue that you would probably do less in in the system. Often there isn't (laughs) the ability to wait to see if a certain drug works. It's kind of from my experience, and it may be different again because every place is different and practitioner is different, but what I typically see in a large tertiary hospitals especially um, and smaller hospitals is that PBH management is kind of an all or nothing. You kind of get all of it because the truth is, right, we're trying to figure out what's causing it. So if your bladder is full and I stick a catheter in and you drain 1.4 liters from your catheter, from your bladder, which is a hell of a lot of urine and not how much it's meant to be holding. Then in my body, I'm in my mind, I'm like, oh, physiologically that makes sense because the bladder sits in front of the uterus. So 1.4 liters is huge. Think about that, right? How much that would be. Once we get rid of the urine, then the uterus is able to do what it's physiologically designed to crack down clamp down and the bleeding stops and so you know that's where we take this really individualized calm approach and we go right we'll put the catheter in that that has worked she doesn't need anything else typically what happens is you have the red buzzer goes off so someone presses the red button on the wall 20 strangers come running in Someone starts writing, someone starts calling things out, other people start yelling about what they've done. And this is where I'm really talking about the environment because any PPH policy I've ever seen never takes this into consideration, right? Everywhere I worked in um, overseas, it's got in an emergency, breastfeed the baby, keep the mother and baby together, right? That was their policy. And I used to love it because it's like, yeah, what you're trying to do is allow the body to overcome whatever is causing the bleeding by keeping the oxytocin flowing. But typically the baby is removed because now that's a falls risk. But strangers run in the room, people you don't know, and then things just start happening. And typically all the things we've talked about happen within a very few within very few minutes. So what Mel's saying of, yeah, the syntocin often does a really great job, there isn't often, it's not often that people will wait to see if it takes effect. So you typically will be given all the goods <laughs> in inverted commas at once you're right actually that's what i have seen at times if i've needed to transfer is that if someone's bleeding they'll give syntocin on and then iv syntocin on and then iv fluids are up and then bladder is empty and then before you know it they've had everything and you're like did anybody even check to see if the first thing worked and this is where we can talk about prevention of pbh at home we're working in an environment that supports the oxytocin flow which is the best thing we can do to prevent a postpartum hemorrhage because 70 or 80% of postpartum hemorrhages are because of the tone of the uterus. And the thing you can rely on to encourage uterine tone is the natural oxytocin of the woman's body. 
And if that doesn't work, we can replace it with an artificial oxytocin, which again, usually works to prevent postpartum hemorrhage. Yeah, so if we talk about preventing postpartum hemorrhage, some research, not all, makes a link, quite a clear link between having your baby at home versus hospital as reducing the risk of postpartum hemorrhage. There are some that talk about there's no difference, but again, that depends on the type of management that you have. So having oxytocin for the birth of your placenta at home still carries the same risk of postpartum hemorrhage as it does if you had oxytocin given to you in hospital. But a lot of research talks about the reduction of postpartum hemorrhage for women who choose to give birth at home. And that, I believe, is largely because we, it's an environment and a clinician that respects the process of the, the requirement of oxytocin flowing through the woman's body and there's less interruption of that. The other thing you can do to prevent PPH is decline episiotomy if it's not absolutely necessary because that's another way that you can lose blood. Ask for physiological placental birth if you absolutely can because we know that that will reduce your risk of postpartum hemorrhage. If you can, avoiding an induction of labor, which seems to be increasing, 30 to 40% of women now will have some kind of induction in their labor, either to start it or keep it going. And we know that that increases the risk of postpartum hemorrhage. It's a really tricky one. This is a hard. So hard. It's, it's actually a really hard podcast. Like I feel like. I think we, we're, B and I are super conscious of not giving the detail of every single thing, but trying not to glaze over it too much. We want to give a general idea of PBH because this is such a individualized, it's not one. Well, I think so many people experience it, right? Like I think there are a lot of people experience it and it's really hard because what we're telling them to do is not mainstream. Yes. Because active management is mainstream. Most people don't know that they have an option. We're sitting here saying the research says that you're better off to have a physiological management, but that is not what maybe they will be. That's definitely not what the argument they'll be presented with is. So it's really tricky. I think overall having a care provider that is aligned with your needs and philosophy is super important. You can feel safe even when an obstetric emergency happens. So I guess what I would really like you, if you're pregnant, to take home from this is if the buzzer gets pressed and all the people run into the room, please know that you are actually safe. Your chance of dying is extremely low. Please have a beautiful affirmation that you tell yourself, I am safe. I am safe. I am in good hands and let them care for you. I know what we're trying to say here is, well, maybe all these things they're doing to you aren't necessary. And in the moment when you are bleeding and your baby's just been born and you've just given birth, trying to fight that isn't going to be helpful to you. It isn't. And I think this is why this is so hard for Mel and I, because really this conversation needs to be with care providers. We need to have the conversation with how we manage PPH as maternity care providers. So if you're listening to this as a care provider, I challenge you, right, offer you to start challenging the current protocols and seeing what you can do better to enable that space to be safe. And I think too, you know, as like you said, as much as we can do, you can do as much as you can to prevent a postpartum hemorrhage. But yes, if you're having one, 
that's the time to accept whatever medical care is around you. And remember, you know, every time I put a postpartum hemorrhage post or some information on social media about postpartum hemorrhage, there's the person who comes on and says, I would have died if I didn't give birth in hospital. There is often people who feel like they may have died if they weren't in hospital. And I think that message can become very strong and instill fear. So if you felt that way, if you feel that way, I am so sorry. I want to send you love. Please debrief your birth, unpack it. Um, Your story is so worthy of being heard and it needs to be heard. It needs to be heard in a safe place where you can unpack it and work through what you feel around it. It often doesn't belong in the space of where pregnant people are because what that does is it instills fear. So we're not saying that your story is not worthy. It's certainly worthy and it's worthy of being heard. But so often pregnant people are bombarded with negative, scary stories. And what happens then is we become part of the birth culture that instills fear. And if you've listened to any of this with us talking, you know that fear doesn't belong in the birth space, nor does anger. And we just want to bring compassion, compassion to you. If you've had an obstetric emergency, big, big love. And if you've had a previous obstetric emergency and you're like a postpartum hemorrhage and you're listening to this episode thinking, what can I do next time? I'm sure um, after listening to the last episode and this, there's probably things that you're thinking, yeah, I'd like it to look differently. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people will probably come to this episode thinking, what can I do next time? And really understanding the cause of your PPH is important here. Amazing. We need to wrap this up. I'm sorry we couldn't cover probably what you came to this episode four. You may not have gotten. All right, I think that's a wrap. We fumbled our way through that one, didn't we? It did not feel good at all. I'll be interested. I'm sure you'll work magic, but it didn't feel good. It didn't feel cohesive at all. I think the reason it feels messy is because it's a, it's a medical event. And typically what we do here is say the system is wrong, but what's actually happening here is often it needs to be managed. Yes. Right. And it's going to be managed the way it's going to be managed. And it needs to go, I think this episode needs to go with and needs to be listened to with episode 24 with the placenta episode. You're listening to this. I almost feel like we did that. I feel like that episode did it enough justice. Yeah, it was a good one. It was a great one, whereas this one, it's kind of like we did all the juicy stuff there. Mm. Yeah, we'll just do breach next. That'll be our, <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. We can have a few dodgy ones. <laughs> I don't think it'll be, I think you'll edit it well. It's just not mind-blowing. That's the thing. There's. All right. Well, that is a wrap on episode 25 of The Great Birth Rebellion, and we will see you in the next episode, episode 26, which I can reveal we're going to do breach with Andrew Bissett in the next episode. So come back for that. But I can't keep a surprise because everyone's like, hey, can you do an episode on breach? And I'm like, oh, we are. I'm going to tell you right now. It's coming up next week. See you there. See you there. Bye, love. Thanks for listening with us today. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favourite podcast platform and join our mailing list at melaniethemidwife.com. Mel sends out weekly emails with access to all the evidence we use in this podcast. 
You can find out more about Mel at melaninthemidwife.com and find out more about me, B, at coreandfloor.com.au. We can't wait to bring you next week's episode of The Great Birth Rebellion. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> All right. <laughs>